This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello everybody and welcome. We are back in the studio. We're here with another episode. Before we get started too far, I do have Patrick in the in the room in the studio. Say hello, Patrick. <laughs> it's good to be here. It's it's good to have you back in town so we can do these episodes. And So if you are listening to this episode, I want to remind all of you that you got to subscribe, you got to like, you got to share, and more importantly, go check out our sponsors. We've got High Mountain Seasoning, PK Lures, and Bow Spider back on for another season. It's really great that those companies have stepped up, supported this effort that Patrick and I have been doing. I've, I mean, Patrick's pouring his heart and soul into it. We're we're getting guests, we're lining, we're scheduling. So please download, share, subscribe, like, go check out those sponsors. You know, we we routinely share promo codes and. You know, right now, if you want to do a great thing, we're doing a big sweepstakes giveaway. So yeah, before we get too far into it. And it's on our website and it's good until the middle of April. That's when we're going to pick a winner. So you have some time. You have a lot of ways you can do it. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel for Radcast or Bow Spider. You can also tag people in that post on Facebook. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. So get out there and enter because there's over $500 worth of stuff on that giveaway. So I'm really excited to announce that... Uh, Definitely one of the top tier guests. When Patrick and I started this, we wrote out a, a list of potential guests, and this uh, this this guest we have back today was uh, very very top of the list, and was my favorite episode for sure. So we've invited him back, and welcome to the show, Mr. Jim Zumbo. Gentlemen, I am pleased to be here, and I use that term loosely when I say gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great to be here again. It really is. You guys do a great job. Well, thank you. It's yeah. it's always good to have you on the show, and it, it, we had a great time yesterday. I want to talk about that just a little bit you because bet. we got to see one of your really good friends, and we got to have him on the show as well, so having Mr. Shockey here for mm-hmm. um, the Muley Fanatic Foundation dinner, and it was a great it was a great night. It was. It really. I was surprised at the support. I called my wife this morning. I said there were five hundred people there. She said, "Where'd they all come from?" I said, oh, they're locals, ranchers, you know, folks from around here. And she was, she was impressed too. It was a great event. Really good. Yeah. I think there was 500 people is what they said. Something like that. 500 ticket sales anyway. And I bet you there were more than that in there. I'll bet. And they were spending money towards conservation and a a great cause. Great cause. And it was, it was a good night. So if if anybody's out there looking for a good adventure, it's a, Get get that on your schedule, and you know it, it'd be worth driving from another state away and getting mm-hmm. a hotel and and coming. But it it sells out every year for a reason. Yeah, yeah, it's and a great I, cause. And I wanted to have you on and talk about some of the stories that you have from over the years. And I think we ought to start with some with uh, Mr. Jim Shockey because you two were giving each other a pretty hard time yesterday <laughs> and having some fun, you know, as as friends yeah. should, right? You've yeah. known you've known Jim a long time and. You know, he talked about you being his hero, and I know you've been a hero to David and I as well. Um, but yeah, could you tell a couple of couple of stories about you guys over the years? You know, I tried to think of how long ago it was that I met Jim, and we discussed it. We had lunch yesterday, and he said probably thirty five years ago. And that first time was on a crazy whitetail hunt in Missouri. 
it was a farmhouse there, and it was a whole bunch of writers and manufacturers. And in fact, Bill Jordan, who uh, founded Realtree Camo, was there. So that would have been like 86. He had just started. And all kinds of industry leaders and writers. And and uh, here's Shockey, and he was wearing these funny-looking shoes and a funny-looking hat. Nobody knew him. He was absolutely, he was a nobody. I mean, some guy from Canada. Who is this dude, you know? Anyway. <laughs> I think but, he mentioned they called him the bag lady. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they did. But interestingly, there were 31 of us there, and there was one toilet in that farmhouse. Oh, my gosh. We were spread out all over in the rooms, and some guys brought RVs, but it was cold, so they were winterized, so their toilets weren't working. But anyway, don't even ask how that all happened. But that was my introduction to Jim, and he had... Uh, this may sound a little arrogant, but he walked up to me, and he did say, like, he's, like he said last night at the mic, he says, you're my hero, because I'm so much older than he is, you know, probably 20 years or so. Anyway, he went on through life and progressed, and he got uh, this big award for, I think it was for the first time he had gotten all the 29 sub uh, species of big game in North America with a muzzleloader, and we had a big party for him, and I walked up to him, I said, Shockey, you're my hero. He said, I said that to you 30 years ago. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we've had we've had lots of fun. Jim's, uh, he's from Saskatchewan originally, and I'll tell you a couple of funny stories. Um, he has a, a bear camp uh, on Vancouver Island, very successful, and he's been hunting there as an outfitter for probably 20 or 30 years. And uh, one time I arrived, and he wasn't there for some, he was out hunting, and he wasn't able to pick me up at the airport. But his dad picked me up, and my gun didn't show up. So his dad says, uh, here, t take my Winchester and go out with one of these guides. So we barely got out of town, probably five miles, and here's this bear standing along the road, logging trucks going by. It was a major road, dust all over. The in fact, the bear had dust on it. And the guy said, shoot that bear. I said, Here? With all these trucks, people going by, he said, that's a big bear. You're not going to see a bigger one. I said, no, nah, I'm not going to shoot that bear here. you got to shoot that bear, Zumbo. Of course, Jim wasn't around, you know, to confirm. But I said, well, if you want me to shoot that bear, let's wait till it goes off in the woods. You know, so there's a, not a big spectacle here. Anyway, the bear went, ambled down this two-track, and uh, I snuck down there and, and uh, finally caught up with him, and I got him. But he was a really big bear, and it was like a half-hour hunt. Wow, <laughs> that was a funny one. <laughs> but every time uh, Jim and I hunted there, we would go to a place called Winter, Car Winter Harbor and buy a bunch of Dungeness crabs. And they always had a big pot, and uh, we'd build a fire and uh, buy the crabs and cook them up. And I'll tell you, they talk about a feast. And oh, man. It, was, it was just so much fun. That's my favorite crab. I mean, oh, Dungeness are the best. Yeah. yeah, in fact, you had some pictures yesterday, you son of a gun. Yeah. I took my son. You know, yeah, I, uh, we're jealous. You may be jealous. <laughs> well, the important part of that trip is, you know, I I'm on the road doing a lot of trade shows, and the ones I can, I take the family, and we we do some sort of event, right? We we've, we've done everything, but our favorite family trip is we have some family friends and some family relatives there in Oregon, so we go stay, and I took two 10-year-old boys with his dad and, and me, and we caught herring and seven Dungeness. We didn't get our limits, but those boys at the mm. end of that trip, all they talked about was catching herring and eating crab. And, oh, yeah. you know, check the box, dad, well done, oh, good boy. job, right? Because 
I guarantee you in 50 years when I'm not around, those boys are going to be, hey, let's go fish and catch some Dungeness. <laughs> and there is few things better than a big old pot of, you know, 15, 20 Dungeness and a, some warm yeah. butter and lay it out on a table. And it, yeah, so next time I will bring you at least one Dungeness, I promise. Promise? I'll okay. try and bring you two. But I'll do all the podcasts you want. For, <laughs> I'll trade you a podcast for a Dungeness crab. That's a deal. There's yeah. another story, a, a quick one. Uh, we were also hunting at uh, in Vancouver, and Tony Knight was with us. Tony is uh, the founder of uh, Knight Rifles, which is a uh, uh, the inline system. And he he and I and Jim were good buddies. And he was hunting with us there. And we, at the end of the hunt, we were out there cooking our crabs, and a boat comes into the harbor. And Tony says, "What are they fishing for?" And Jim says, "They're fishing for sea urchins." And Jim and Tony says, "Really?" And I said sea urchins and i said you know what i said i love sushi in fact jim and i and his wife and tony we've had sushi dinners forever it seems like every time it was a show but i did not like urchins and i said what do they taste like really fresh he said let's come on over here and let's see if we can go get one so we walk over on the dock and and uh, the fisherman got out and there was a man standing there who's an oriental gentleman and he had a black suit and white shirt and a tie on and he was dressed to the nines and sunglasses and he looked like the mafia and he looked at us and glared as we walked over and thought oh you know <laughs> we don't really want to talk to this guy because he looks pretty hostile so shocky whips a five dollar bill out of his pocket and he says hey mister can we buy an urchin just to, just to taste it for these guys and the guy smiles and he pulls out an urchin with a hammer and a big silver spoon and he cracks the urchin hands both halves up to us and we ate the thing there and it was amazing he was just laughing and smiling and, and it was a complete transformation and it was <laughs> and that urchin was so good i never turned it down at a sushi bar again but it was just a, i don't know i just different but uh, that was kind of funny how that all turned out so another time we were in texas and you guys know what a sea cucumber is i do yeah you probably do yeah it looks like a big pickle within it. Just it's ugly looking. Lives on the ocean floor and slimy and <laughs> slides around. And it's, they're delicious. And you got to know how to cut them up. Shocky, he's he's a diver, and we were hunting on a ranch in South Texas. And he shows up with a cooler full of sea cucumbers ready to eat. I thought, holy smokes, that's that's, that's a world class guy right there. <laughs> he can come hunting anytime. Yeah, he shows for sure. up. Yeah. But he's he's a great guy, and he he won the Weatherby Award four years ago, which is the highest award in hunting period anywhere in the world, and uh, and rightly so because he was uh, he deserved it. And he said he'd taken over three hundred and fifty species of animals around the world to get that award. But anyway, that's that's a that's lifetime true. award. That's oh. you, you're not gonna you're not gonna start saying, hey, I'm gonna get that award and start this year and get it done even this decade. No. No, and, and it's a big deal. Everyone, it's a black tie dinner, and there's a fifteen hundred people out there, you know, and the wives are all gussied up, you know, and lots of bling, and the guys are all wearing black ties and tuxedos, and it's a it's a really quite an event. But so that's that's kind of some of the shocky stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. He he seemed like he was having a good time. It was fun watching him talk to the kids, and he made sure yeah. that he talked to everybody. Yep. And that was something I really respect. Yep. He sure did. Yep. Yeah. I was telling a story last night that we were sitting there with him, and 
this this kid came up and wanted to talk to him you know and i mean he was he was that kid's hero and i remember being that same way with kurt gowdy who was oh, another yeah. just incredible outdoors guy had a had a great show and just was a guy that I admired growing up. And I, it, I was in the same boat. I walked up to the table and Kurt Gowdy's sitting there with the governor and, you know, with our state senators and yep. this big deal. And, and he turned his chair around and he talked to me as long as he, you know, as long as I wanted to talk to him and sign my program, which I still have. That's and, cool. Uh, he was just a, how long ago was that? Oh man, that was back in the early nineties. I was a little, wow. I think I was six or seven. Yeah. So. Yeah. And we got to witness that last night with, well, both gyms, actually, while yeah. we were sitting there, people coming up and asking for autographs. And, you know, we were podcasting with Shockey in the morning, and he was still going, you know, full tilt at 10 o'clock last night, yeah. shaking hands and smiling. And I, I know I was tired, and I know you were tired. So it was good yeah. to see him oh, yeah. come out for the community and support yeah. an event that, you know, I want to give Mealy Fanatics the, the, the head nod a little bit. What oh, what sure. they're doing, you know, mm-hmm. with their with their nonprofit organization and the and the kid hunts and the wildlife conservation. You know, they they mm-hmm. put their money towards one of the, you know, wildlife overpasses, which is not a cheap endeavor, but the science has proven that that saves Yep. Saves, saves a lot of deer. Yeah. So there's some other organizations out there that I kinda wanna get you highlight or spotlight you know hunting with heroes is one that i know you've done some with so can you tell us about that organization yeah hunting with heroes is it's based out of casper it was founded by uh two veterans one from vietnam and one from iraq uh, a couple guys here in casper and basically it's for disabled military and you have to be 50 percent military disabled in other words you have got to have had your injury in combat or somehow and it's a really neat program and i think wyoming is the only state that's got it the essence is that you can donate your tag to hunting with heroes and someone disabled 50 percent or more can use that tag and when you think about it non-residents that want to hunt in wyoming have to apply for everything in fact we we residents have to apply for antelope and and limited entry elk and deer moose sheep right mm-hmm. but yeah. anybody can even a non-resident can get a tag. There's been non-residents that have drawn moose and sheep tags and donated them to Hunting with Heroes, which were then passed on to a, a soldier, Marine, whatever. And the beauty of it is they have a guaranteed hunt, and all they have to do is get to Wyoming, and, and the hunt's got to be in Wyoming, and we take it from there. So, And so far there's been more than 1,000 hunters that have gone through the program, most of them antelope hunters. But it's it's really a cool deal. And if you want more information, you have to apply. I'm pretty sure it's huntingwithheroes.com. And it's heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S. There's no apostrophe. I think there might be another group out there. But it's really well worth it. And uh, there's a lot of great people who are behind it. And, uh, and uh, in fact, there's, a, there's some pretty good uh, antelope hunts that are held right around here, around this area mm-hmm. for Hunting with Heroes. But I've gone to their banquet dinners I've as been, well. And they're, yeah. they put on a great show as well. Yeah. And they've had a couple past, I guess, call them clients, come on. And, uh-huh. mm-hmm. you know, these guys talk about how it changed their whole outlook and perspective on life, the support of the community for That's the military right. here. But it's all it's all volunteer work, you know, the yep. the, the private land access, the guides, the, yep. the cooking, the food, the lodging. It's all volunteer dollars, all volunteer work. And we, 
we host these veterans who let's, let's put it on the table. I mean, they protected yeah. our freedom with their lives. That's right. And they, they talk about, and I'm almost getting emotional talking about it because they, some of these guys come back and volunteer from three States away every year to make sure these yeah. vets are, are taken care of and respected and, and shown the, you know, shown the respect yeah. they, they've earned and deserved. And that yeah. those hunts mean, I mean, you take somebody that's 50% disabled that's sitting home kind of kicking themselves in the butt and wondering, wondering what they're doing to, Hey, I'm going on this hunt. And they come out here and they they're treated like royalty because they are royalty. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Do you have a story that you could share from one of the hunts that you went on with on, uh, for hunting with your Well, we did a hunt last year near Lovell, Wyoming, up uh, east of Powell. And we took three guys. It was a, a deer hunt. And one was from Minnesota, one from North Carolina, and one from Texas. And uh, two of them drove, one of them flew. So we put them up in a motel in Lovell. Uh, hunting with Heroes did. They take care of all that. And uh, there's a fellow from Cody's, a taxidermist, who's got a bunch of land lease, and he basically volunteered. He set up the whole program. He called and he said, "Let's do this. Let's get these guys up here." So he he let them hunt their hunt his lease. So we went out with them, and within two days they had uh, they got two white tails and a mule deer. And uh, the thing about it is, these guys, you know, they get together on these hunts and they sit around a campfire and they they talk and they want to talk, but it's they talk to each other because I was not in the service and I don't know what they experienced, but they all do. And there's a real commonality and it's a time to open up, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they will. And we'll talk about where they were injured and they'll talk about, and it's great therapy. And hunting is also empowering. Um, we hear that a lot. I mean, it's almost spiritual because you're out there and, you know, you're by yourself and you make your own decisions. It's totally different than the lives that a lot of those guys have. So, but Wyoming, I have to say, is really um, uh, disabled friendly. Also in Wyoming, if you're 100% disabled, you can get a, you can not only get a permit to shoot from the vehicle, but you can hunt five days before the season starts. Five days before, the, which is a heck of a, a good deal because you're out there and no one else is there. Yeah. So that's a good deal for. We've had veterans that. Uh, well, I was also I was involved with several other foundations. One of them is in Alaska. Alaska's Healing Hearts, based out of Wasilla, and I was a president for five years. And we took guys hunting that were so bad off. They were, I guess you call them quadriplegic because they had no arms, no legs, you know, and they had the. They had to use a, a trigger. It was like a sip straw. You know, they somebody would help line the animal up. But from there to guys and gals, believe it or not, there's there's female purple hearts. Uh, mm-hmm. um, we've taken them on a bunch of hunts, and they they all just you know they're all just amazed at how much fun it is and how much again how much therapy it is to be around each other. You know, and to share those stories. So yeah, there's a lot of good stuff we're doing out there. And a lot of people are doing it because uh, those, they say that 22 veterans take their lives every day. And uh, it's, it's probably, I'm sure it's true. And this is one way to let them see, get those demons out of their heads for a little while and hopefully, you know, keep on keeping those demons away so the unthinkable doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so. it's unfortunate that a lot of veterans get forgotten. And oh, yeah. Wyoming is actually per capita, we have one of the highest veteran populations in the United States. We're in the top five. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's important to remember those veterans and say thank you and and do that outreach because they have sacrificed a lot. I mean, think about, you know, my generation, David's generation, a lot of our friends were over in Iraq and oh, Afghanistan yeah. yep. right out of high school, you know, mm-hmm. and they they left their families. Some of them got married, like my friend Cody, he got married, then went straight straight to Iraq. I mean, it was, and he was there 15 months on that first deployment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a that's a long time. Yeah, it is. And that's a huge sacrifice. So, yeah, it is. Um, so if you're listening and you're a veteran, thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and seriously, if you're, you are interested, uh, uh, Google HuntingWithHeroes.com and get the application form. Everything's free. Uh, if you're listening from out of state, all you have to do is get here for the hunt, and uh, we take care of all that. So it's a good deal. I want to tell you one other story. Um, it was back in Virginia. We were doing a goose hunt with a Marine from Quantico. He had two Purple Hearts, and uh, he hadn't hunted very much at all. In fact, I think that was probably his first hunt. So we're laying out in a goose blind, and it was a beautiful day. It was about 30 degrees. There was light snow falling, you know, and the sun would come out, and the geese were really flying. We got our limits, and we were picking up our geese. And the guy says, wait a minute, i got to tell you something. He says, ever since I got hurt, he says, I've been given Super Bowl tickets and NASCAR tickets and skiing tickets, and this hunt was the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me, far away better than anything else I've done. He said, I can't disbelieve it, so... And we took him to Florida for an exotic hunt and a Maine for a moose hunt. But uh, it's it's just working with these guys and, and just helping them along because they don't know where to go, you know, to get that kind of um, that kind of enjoyment. And so it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, there's a component to that hunting that you know I I think to the most recent hunt I took my dad and brother on, you know coming coming back from wherever we're at and just sitting around the campfire and sharing the day's stories and, yeah. and the laughter and the camaraderie doesn't the, the trophy quality size the quantity of game that's that's marginal right it's, sure. it needs to be there and and that's why the the mission is to go there for that but that tertiary enjoyment that that you don't you don't get that if you just go hey we're gonna go to campground we're gonna sit around a fire and chat it I don't, I don't, I can't put my finger on what the difference is exactly, mm-hmm. but we don't have to harvest something that day, That's right? right, yep. We put a hard day's work in trying, Yep. but coming back, sharing a meal, sharing a campfire, having <clears> some laughs, <throat> that is the quintessential best part of, of the whole. That, that, you're right, that's important. Everybody, everybody wants to get something, you know, when you go hunting, of course. Um, People just don't just go to sit around a campfire. They want to hunt. And they want to hunt hard and enjoy it. But then, as you say, when the evening, when the day is over, and you sit around a fire, and, and if the hunt ends, you don't get anything. At least you've got those memories, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a loss at all. It was just you know, hunting's hunting, as they say, <laughs> no guarantees. Yeah, and so. the other part of it too, I think, is once you've hunted all day, mm-hmm. you've calmed yourself down. You've you've you kind of go to a different place you know, in your mind. I right. know I do. Yep. And so when you go to that campfire, you're in a different place where you feel more able to share, you know, at least for me, you know, it kind of is, it's calming being out in nature. And yeah. if you've worked really hard that day, oh, absolutely. boy, 
you know, it's it's good to just be like, oh, I'm around the campfire. I can relax now. And it kind of brings all the guards down and you can have a good conversation. That's right. And, you know, when you're hunting out there, you don't have to follow any rules as far as traffic rules, driving rules or whatever. You know, nobody's telling you what to do. You're by yourself. You make your own decisions, whether you're in a tree stand or you're just walking along, still hunting or Riding on a horse, you just it's just you and and the great outdoors and your companions. And uh, I always look forward to coming back to camp at night and, and uh, see what happened, see what Joe did or what Harry did. You know, it was a big thrill. Like, where's Joe? Did he get back yet? No, he's still out. I wonder if he got an elk. I don't know. And so Joe comes <laughs> staggering in with blood on his hands. Everybody's all happy, you know, and have a big fire. Of course, nowadays. With cell phones, right away, Joe fires. Who shot? Who shot? Joe shot. Oh, okay, good. There's no more expense. The suspense, you know. Yes, okay, yeah. Joe got one, so all right. Uh, we'll see him at camp. But I, I like the old days or where there's no cell service or no walkie-talkies, and you just don't know what happened until you walk in that tent or around the fire. So That's, for me, awful. part of the lure of going on these backcountry hunts is there is no phone. And yeah. you'd be surprised, mm-hmm. you know, we do pull the cell phones out to use for cameras to take pictures, but you know, there's no checking, checking this, checking that. Yep. And there's it, society kind of melts away and you just get to be in the moment of watching the sunrise, watching the wind move the leaves or watching a squirrel go up and down a tree while mm-hmm. you're, you're waiting in it. It transcends our existence of this hustle and bustle, busy, chaotic life. Yep. Right. And like to your point, some of my favorite memories are embracing the suck of we harvested something <laughs> right at dark and oh. it's bad weather and the wall tent's three miles, six miles, 12 miles away. And we roll in at, you know, oh, dark 30. And sometimes we have somebody at camp that kept the wood stove going. Mm-hmm. There's a tinfoil plate of dinner on the stove for you. And you go, wow, this is it, when you come around the bend and you see the light, the lantern going in the wall oh, tent. Yeah. And the stove going. You smell you, the smoke when you're oh. out to camp yet. And he's, oh, we're almost there. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, you're with a guide who's a liar. How far is camp? 300 yards. 700 yards later, you say, where's camp? Just another 200 yards. yards, you know, before you know you're a mile out. <laughs> I do like Onyx because I could actually put a track oh, and yeah. put a waypoint. And I could go, dude, it says 2.5 yeah. miles. Uh, you're lying here to me. <laughs> but if you want to ramp that up a notch, and I know you've done it because we talked about where you got your last elk, and I won't say, but it's close to my house. When you got grizzly bears out there, there's another whole it, it's just, I mean, you're in the woods and you hear a noise and you're at constant alert. You probably have bear spray on one holster or a handgun on the other, whatever. I have two cans of bear spray and, and one pistol, but you are no longer the apex predator in the Absolutely. woods. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's a totally different feeling when you're walking. Oh, in the dark, my God, you shoot. As you know, <clears throat> one of the best times to shoot an elk is just before dark because they come out of the timber. They're in the, yep. you know, chewing their cuds all day and they come out and they want to eat. So you shoot an elk with 10 minutes of shooting light left, and you got the gutting process, maybe take 20 minutes or half hour, however, you know, you might have to position that thing to, to skin If you're it. by yourself, it's a, it's a hellacious And then task. you've got to come back in the morning to get it, um, unless you've got a whole crew with you and you can pack the quarters out in the dark. But most times the guys will leave the elk, you know, gutted, quartered, and uh, waiting. And, of course, a grizzly bear comes by downwind, ain't your elk anymore. And if you approach that thing, you could, and that's how most of the maulings happen in Wyoming. I've done a lot of grizzly bear stories for outdoor life. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
readers love to read about bear attacks, and the editors knew that, so they'd send me on. They'd send me to Alaska or BC or Yukon to get grizzly attack stories. But uh, it's uh, it's just it's it's dangerous. I I had a grizzly bear on my lawn twice this year, this summer, um, on my lawn. And over the years, I lived just outside of I live in Wapiti, just outside of Yellowstone, about twenty five miles. And we've had bears every year, either tracks in the driveway. One time they tried to get in my truck. They had uh, muddy claw marks on my truck. I had a compost pile, and they ripped that up. They liked the carrots in my garden. So you live with them, you know. And you, But still, like, if I was flying out in the morning and I'd have to get in my truck in the dark at 4 o'clock in the summer and you hear a noise in the brush, is that a raccoon or is that a bear? You know, yeah. you just don't know, but it's it's different. It's One different. tip on the uh, bear encounters I've picked up is I've converted to the gutless method. Mm-hmm. So, and there was a rifle hunt I was helping with where two or three elk got killed the same evening. We did the gutless method on the harvest I was helping with, and we moved those quarters only 300 yards, mm-hmm. and then we hung them. 12 feet up a tree, I had to climb up and pull one in while the other guy pulled the other. And they were they were a little lower than I'd like. I'd like them 15 feet up to the top so the bottoms are 12. You know, a big bear uh-huh. can stand up, and you don't want to pull that down. But right. the guys one ridge over, they gutted their elk, and it had been covered by the next morning. Now, they approached with five guys and didn't mm-hmm. get mauled. But if you're by yourself, it's a, you yeah. can't hang quarters. And even just trying to move four quarters, neck meat, and backstrap bags, that's oh. six loads. Yeah. And you're yeah. shuttling back and forth. So we do, I like to hunt with two or three guys. Yep. We'll do the fireman carry. So we'll process the whole thing, six game bags. All the meat goes in the bags. And you usually have your backpack, your weapon, right? And so now you've got, we just do this fireman shuttle of three uh-huh. backpacks or two backpacks and a, a weapon and six yeah. game. And we just keep leapfrogging down the hill till sure. we get that distance and try and get, I try and get out of inevitably you you harvest something it runs in the thick timber that's just where they go (laughs) so i try and at least get out on the edge where i can approach you know from a safe distance and yeah i don't want to be chewed on by a bear that doesn't oh no kidding doesn't excite me yeah you know you're talking about ideal conditions where you got four or five guys and hopscotching back and forth but by yourself essentially there may be two guys and one guy's got a bad back and by the way, the Forest Service, both the Shoshone and the Bridger Teton Forest of Wyoming, require you under law to hang those quarters 10 foot high and 4 feet away from the trunk. It's a law. You can check it out. I just wrote about it last week. Yeah. So you've got to do that. But I know some guys in Cheyenne that work for Game and Fish. They're all retired now. And they tried to, they tried, they, they got an elk somewhere. There wasn't a tree within a quarter of a mile. Yep. And there were three or four of them, and they had to lug those things around. And the tree wasn't even big enough to hold a, hold a quarter. It's just a little spindly thing. And I yeah. said, you know, there's places where you can't do that. No, I you mean, can't. An elk quarter, a big bull, is going to weigh 90 pounds or more. Typically 90. I weighed a lot of them just because. But uh, that's a lot of weight to hang up in a tree if you don't have. And you need a branch. That 200, absolutely. Yeah. 200 feet of paracord and minimum of two guys. We usually have three. One guy's pushing the quarter up with a stick, and two guys are pulling. Because that paracord digs into the tree branch. You can't do it and by your yourself. hands, too. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> so we'll kill an elk at 6, 7 o'clock, and yeah. it'll be with three guys. It'll be about midnight when we leave yeah. the hanging quarters cart. And then you've got the... 
you know, we're usually two, three mile hike out. So it's, it's one, two o'clock when we roll into the wall. When you're walking out in grizzly country in the dark with a quarter on your back, like, Oh boy, you know, I'm a buffet. (laughs) (laughs) Put a little bacon on it too, just for the heck of it. But, uh, well, more than once I have run out of water (laughs) and the headlight has somehow got misplaced or the batteries died. And so I now pack lots of, I pack a spare, a spare liter of water in a, in a different container than my water bladder with my hose. Mm-hmm. And I always pack two headlights with one spare set of batteries because mm-hmm. inevitably you're going to lose one or one's going to die. And I never want to try and follow somebody else. You know, their headlights work and it is the hardest thing to walk down a trail in the dark with somebody, you know, oh, they're yeah. illuminating <laughs> where they're walking and you just stumble <laughs> yeah. over every rock and stick and Roots. you're inevitably tired. Yeah. You know, you're struggling picking your feet up with that elk quarter on your back. Yep. So. Another thing uh, that's smart to do is if you have to leave your quarters behind, and a lot of people do, they just can't do it that night. It's dark and they need a horse to get it out and they just want to get out of there and go back to camp, is to take those quarters and put them in an opening where you can see them from a distance with your binoculars. And when you come back in the morning, if they've been moved or if they've been covered with dirt, a bear's down there laying down close. So Get a huge crew of guys. Yeah, either that or, you know, you might be camped where there's only two of you or three of you and, the, the wisdom that the game and fish says just get out of there if there's a bear on your yeah, elk, eat your elk anymore. Yeah. Forget it. It's not worth it because that's that's when things can happen. That's how that uh, outfit got killed. Uh, yeah, Upton. Um, you know, unfortunately, they were out there starting to gut a elk, and here come a mama and a baby, but not a baby, but her cub that was juvenile. Big, yeah, and killed him, and the other guy got away. But uh, yeah, near grizzly country is something else. So, and yeah, maybe share a story or two about grizzlies because I mean, you live in grizzly country. We live in grizzly country. What are, what's a, a story from the past? Maybe one you've written about, maybe one you haven't, but that you'd like to share. Well, I can tell you kind of a humorous story about grizzlies. Uh, first, um, it was a bear on my lawn. My labs were on the porch. We have an upper deck and they were barking. I looked out and here's a grizzly rolling around on the lawn. It was in the summer. And I thought, holy smoke. So I, Got the dogs in the house. I went out, leaned on the railing with a video camera, and I filmed that bear. And he just stayed there, just hung around eating grass and rolling around. And then I thought, you know, oh, Mike Brasino, who's now retired, game and fish, he was our predator, main predator biologist. He's the guy that literally dealt with the bears. He gave me his cell phone. He says, if you ever have a bear around the house, let me know, and we'll evaluate it and see if we need to move it or just whatever, you know. So just kind of keep an eye on it so i'm thinking i'll call mike but he's probably somewhere in, in the boonies by pinedale or who knows somewhere out near jackson you know and i called him and he answers the phone and uh said mike where are you he said i'm about a mile and a half below your house i said what are you doing here he says i got a crew from 60 minutes from new york city doing a documentary on people who live with grizzly bears I says, well, hold on to your hat. I'm looking at a bear right now in my yard. No kidding. So they came racing up the road in four vehicles, this big camera crew, you know, and all these. And the bear heard them, and it turned off and, and walked down to the creek and just disappeared. So they just barely missed it. So they came in the house, and I showed them the video and, and uh, the producer. It wasn't one of the anchor people that you see on 60 Minutes. This was the field people. Right. And the head guy says, man, he says, we 
can we take some of that footage back with us? And, you know, I'm a writer, and I sell stories and words. And I said, you betcha. You know, if they could 60 minutes, I'm going to retire from this deal. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. So, anyways, they took the film back, and they used about, oh, I don't know, 20 seconds of it. And then they interviewed my wife and I about living with bears. And uh, so it was kind of fun to be on 60 minutes. But I only got yeah. a check for 200 bucks. <laughs> well, hey, it was it was a good day, though. No, I know. Like, hey, <laughs> so my dinner. friends were saying, "Oh, I'm about, you're going to get ten thousand bucks for that footage." That's sixty minutes from New York City. Wow. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> ten thousand bucks turned into two hundred. <laughs> I got a brown bear story in Alaska. We were fishing. Uh, Jim Teeny is a very dear friend of mine. He's probably one of the he's probably the top fly fisherman in the West Coast. Uh, he makes his own teeny nymph and. He's uh, a fly fisherman strictly, and he's fished Alaska. He's fished all over the world, and uh, he took me under his wing, and I made my first trip to Alaska with him about 40 years ago. But one time we were fishing a river. We had uh, a float plane and landed, and we caught a bunch of salmon. We kept a couple for lunch, and the float plane was moored across the river, which was about 50 yards wide and maybe in a deep spot, two foot deep. We had waded across. And we had a little barbecue grill, and, and we, so we started cooking some salmon. There were five of us. And somebody looked up and said, holy smokes, here come a brown bear. He smelled that salmon cooking, and he come running. <laughs> and we scattered like quail. Everybody ran in the alders. And what do I do? Like an idiot, I run for the plane. So here I am, and, and you know, trying to walk on water. And my legs felt like lead weights. And I got to that plane, I beat that bear by two yards. He came straight after me. I don't know what, you know. Anyway, I was packing a fly rod. I didn't have a gun. So never again have I gone to Alaska without <laughs> packing my forty four. <laughs> so that was a goofy story. But, he wanted some fresh cooked salmon. Yes, he, I can't well, blame him. <laughs> he probably thought I had some. That's why he was chasing me. <laughs> oh, man. And it's so good when you catch it and you cook it that day. Oh, so yeah. I'm sure oh. he was like, oh, yeah, that smells good. Yep. I'd probably yeah. chase you, too, to get after yeah. him. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've, been, I've seen lots of bears because, you know, I, I live in right in prime bear country, and uh, most of them go the other way. I've had a couple bluff charges. They, they didn't get within 30 yards, but I thought they were going to be, and that's, I'll tell you, that's a time of reckoning. Wow, it's pretty scary. But um, our uh, Game and Fish and Cody, they do a neat thing every year. They give away... 100 cans of uh, free bear spray and if you like to you can uh, do a demonstration um, they have a, a wooden grizzly bear on two rails and you stand at the end of the rail with a can of water it's not bear spray and you're you're standing away from the bear so he's coming from behind you so there's a game warden standing there and he says bear well, the bear's 30 yards away on the rail. Another warden pushes the bear three seconds, and that bear is on it. You have to turn around and hit it with a spray. It's just a kind of yeah. a demonstration to let you know how, you know. Three seconds is very realistic. Yeah. yeah. My wife did it, uh, and she had fun because she walks the dogs every day, and she carries spray. But I said, do you really know how to use that? She says, yeah. I says, can you use it fast? She said, well, that's, you know, I'm not sure. So I said, let's go to that demonstration and try it out. How'd <laughs> she do? She did great, but it was water, you know. But still, you have to turn around and react and get that thing off the, you know, pull the thing. Get the and safety off. Yeah, yeah. So, 
You have yeah. to be quick with bears because they're very, very fast. They may look like a big oaf, but they can move really quick. Oh, my quick. gosh. A charging bear, it, you can't imagine. They can go 35 miles an hour. You cannot even imagine how fast they are. I just wrote a I read a column for Peterson's Hunting on the back page, and uh, it just came out this week on using handguns for bears because a lot of people – think that bear spray is for sissies. It's not. All the wardens carry it. Everybody, park service, the people who know carry it. Outfitters carry it, and a gun as well, most of them. But if you're going to kill a bear or stop a bear with a handgun, number one, it's got to be capable of reaching a a vital area, and it's got to be hit in the spine or in the head, or you're not going to kill that bear fast enough. You can hit it in the heart. You can hit it in the shoulder. You can hit it in the lungs, and its momentum is going to still carry it toward you and, and maybe kill you before it dies. Yeah. You know, two years ago, there were two grizzly bear maulings, one by my house literally and one of them over by Jackson. I talked to both survivors, and they basically emptied their guns in those bears, and luckily there were several of them. And uh, one one guy got hurt a little bit. bear took his thumb off, but uh, they were lucky. So, you know, anybody that thinks... I know, guys, oh, I got a 500 or I got a, you know, this big giant magnet will kill any bear. Okay, you hit it in the right spot when that thing is dodging and darting and weaving and just growling and coming at you. And tell me how accurate you're going to be and hit that spot. Uh, with all that, that adrenaline. Like that. Yeah. And more importantly, your attention is usually focused to the north. You're looking at elk or hiking, and Absolutely. all of a sudden, east or west, you hear that little rustle, and your brain says, is that a squirrel or is that a bear? Yep. By the time you turn your head, here comes this bear exploding out of the brush full speed. Most you, of the you time have another second or two. That's right. Most of the time, it's a surprise. Now, if you see a bear 100 yards away coming on the same trail you're on, for example. And you say, hey, bear, and you and can you get say, ready. That's a different yeah, story. Yeah, and you're ready. But all of a sudden, like these two wrestlers that got nailed by my house also in Cody last year, yep. that bear was showed up 10 yards away. Bam. And that one kid got knocked over. And the other kid, they were both wrestlers from the Powell from the college there, yep. grabbed that bear by the ears and tried to pull it off his buddy. And, of course, the bear turned on him. They both got mauled pretty badly. They had to get flown out. They survived, but, heck, that made uh, all the news, the national news and everything. But, it's, it's again, it, it indicates how fast it can happen. I mean, you just – they were out there looking for sheds. Yeah, you know? they are just walking around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Well, and I, you talked about the two main causes. You know, obviously, if they're on a kill, they're going to defend that. But also cubs, man. You get between oh. a mama and her cubs, you oh, better boy. look out. Oh. Yeah, big trouble. Big trouble. Yep. And that so. happens a lot up around Dubois. You yeah. Know, with hikers and yeah. whatnot. They'll be hiking up there around Brooks Lake or whatever. And mm-hmm. you, you got to pay real close attention to what you're doing. Well, there's a lot of cattle that are killed by bears around Dubois, isn't there? Yes, yeah, a lot. Bad spot yeah. There. Yeah. A lot of cattle depredation. And, you know, it's. It, <laughs> there are a ton of bears now. Oh. I mean, it, you know, my dad talks about in the 1970s when he would hunt you know, up around Brooks Lake or up in the Hoback, and there just weren't, there weren't a lot of them. They were there, but there weren't a lot of them. And now, I mean, it's it's nothing like it used to be. Yep, yep. And there's a big difference between an interior grizz, a coastal brownie, and these ungulate predating yep. grizz that we have here in the States. Sure I, is. You know, I've encountered two or three bear in grizzlies in Alaska usually during off season or didn't have a tag or whatever. And you say, Hey bear, 
that bear is breaking brush for 300 yards and then you see him another mile mile and a half away still mm-hmm. loping to get away from you why because they're not on the top of the food chain we have some great footage from our kodiak trip this year we went down we flew, flew in three four days before the season there was a fish weir and falls below us sockeye are running like 16 bears on film in the same two hours right they're sitting there catching fish and they're mm-hmm. from from me to the the front porch parking area you know we we had to back up one point in time when two cubs and a sow just decided that they were going to take our little island and they're gonna they're coming <laughs> up to right now where were you we were on you cat my park uh yeah yeah on the brooks river uh we were okay. on fraser lake oh, okay that's got another it's it's couple miles i don't i don't know how many air miles but it's the other side of Gap my park so but there was oh there was one big bear guys when you see this footage he's he's wider than he is tall and he was <laughs> lazy he stood against one boulder and he would turn his head you know not even 90 degrees 45 degrees his fish would kind of lazily jump a rock if he couldn't just open his mouth and bite it he only ate five salmon the two hours we were sitting there he never took a step. There was another sow with two cubs, and I have this picture, and I'll, we'll post it on social. She ate like 15 salmon. She was just eating the row yeah, and the yeah. skin mm-hmm. and giving the carcasses to the cubs, and they were just between her legs crawling all over. Just And she caught, in less than an hour and a half, 15 salmon. And she was pretty energetic about it, right, taking mm-hmm. two steps left and right, but she had the spot. However, they went up on a little knoll and took a nap, and I have – cub one and cub two laying with their heads on mom's chest and she's laying on her back you know and it's a it's a beautiful photo but we had to give them their space but we we're giving them 30 40 yard space and saying hey bear they all knew her there but it was a big tourist spot where the bears are kind of habituated to people there's a house kind of like your house that's 50 or 100 yards away mm-hmm. there's a big difference in the attitudes totally of those bears and the bears we have here have been habituated to they hear a rifle shot there's a gut pile and mm-hmm. they're the top predator they they know that the humans are going to back off and yeah. it's time to unfortunately i don't want to get too political but when that when that endangered species act got put in place with the grizzly bear yeah. um 1975 700 bears yeah. was the threshold was the threshold of yeah. recovered we are now a somewhere around 1200 bears and we've had the biologist on here, and they've talked about that number is intentionally low by mm-hmm. a couple percent. So we can yeah. safely say 13, 1,400 bears. So we're double the threshold, mm-hmm. and they're still on the list. And that's that's not all right. That's that's going against science. Well, that's There are a lot of people well-funded, well-lawyered up that uh, are adamant you know, that we don't all that happen we had the season for grizzlies a few years ago there were 22 tags in wyoming idaho had one montana had none and that season was ready to go the hunters were ready to go two days before a judge a federal judge in missoula decided that he needed more time to study the situation so he stopped the hunt now these there were people in cody ready to to go hunting the next day so and three weeks before that, that same judge said, I believe Wyoming and their biologists have done the due diligence and prudence to put this right. hunt on. And what right. the general public doesn't know, understand, or realize, state of Wyoming is removing about 50 bears a year from the population. That's true. That's true. Plus or minus. So the 24 bears that the hunters were going to re- remove was just going to reduce that 50 bears that the state was already reducing. You know, yeah. it, 
it goes completely against common sense, against science, against conservation, against everything that we stand for. And we need to do something about being better stewards and communicating that this will ultimately be a good thing. Yeah, and also, obviously, the bears are under the jurisdiction of the federal government, but the state of Wyoming deals with them on the ground. From my understanding, the Fish and Wildlife, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife agent lives in Lander. The guys from Cody, the Game and Fish, if they have a bear situation, they have to call him, and they he might text them or call them, and they'll tell them, okay, put that bear down or whatever. And believe it or not, Game and Fish has spent $55 million dealing with grizzly bears in Wyoming. Game and Fish, where does that money come? To us fishing and hunting licenses. Yeah, we're paying for it. Well, we paid for some of it last night at the banquet with an auction conservation tag. It went straight yeah. to the predator board. Right? But, you know, grizzly bear, all bears, you know, they're, I don't know, I guess it's thanks to Walt Disney and, and some of the folks out there, they make them look like they're cute little characters. And and uh, it's going to be really, really tough if it ever happens. I think you see that Harriet Hageman uh, just introduced another bill in the Wyoming legislature to, uh, or in, a, in, a, in Congress to uh, delist the bears again. But I just don't see it happening just because there's so much opposition. There's so many people out there that don't want to see grizzly bears hunted because they don't understand. I think we're going to wipe them out. We're, t- we're basically talking about nuisance bears, yep. you know, bears that are getting in trouble anyway. So anyway, but back to your uh, kind of a funny story um, as far as in Alaska where some of these bears are are basically targeting salmon and, and essentially – not dangerous to people. There's a place in Katmai Park called Brooks River. I've been there several times, and you fly. You have to fly in on a float plane, and once you land, it's in it's in a park. A ranger comes over and explains to you what you have to do and what you can't do. You have to walk a mile and a half on a trail to get to the falls, and uh, they say if you're fighting a fish, and your reel is going, zzz, you stick the reel underwater so the bear doesn't hear it. Because the bears are all over. They're fishing all around you. I've had them walk right by me on the trail, and I'm like, this is okay. Go on by, buddy, you know. And, and uh, But anyway. Within two or three feet. Within two, it's brushing on you almost. But at the falls itself, the first time I was there, you just stood on the ground. And you might have seen a picture. It's very common. There's a bear that stands on a rock, and the salmon jump right in his mouth. And he just, I don't know, and he grabs that salmon. That happens. There's one rock, and the bears take turns on that rock it's like 20 yards from where we sit on the ground and you can get the most incredible i mean national geographic has been there and all these uh bbc has been there filming these bears but the first year i went there we were sitting on the ground now we've got an observation tower you know you go up these stairs so you're a lot safer from the bears but i'll tell you it's crazy i mean these these bears are as you know you know they're walking around you and just all they want is those fish but they're but, uh, they're tipping the scales on the big end of 1400 pounds oh yeah absolutely well you know what else is funny <laughs> a lot of times people will pull in in a plane and they'll moor the plane and they might have fish in the in the floats because the floats are <laughs> hollow and you stick stuff in the floats so here comes a bear along the shore, and you know, the nose a bear has, well, what the hell, there's a free meal in there, so they rip the <laughs> heck out of the float getting the fish. Some people have decided to spray the floats first. Don't do it, because that attra- once that capsicum wears off, it actually attracts the bear. So the spray only works when you hit them in the, 
in the, the, in, the yeah. in the nose and cause that respiratory distress. But that's just it's just hilarious how those birds just wreck those <laughs> things. I don't know how true the story is. It's been passed around Alaska a few times, but a uh, a bush pilot drops off a, a fisherman solo guy and he gets his tent out, gets him unloaded, and takes off and waves his, you know, and he's just going to circle one time to wave his wings and say goodbye to the guy. And the guy is just violently rolling around on the ground everywhere, flopping like a fish. And so the pilot lands and goes over there. And the guy had decided once the pilot took off to cover himself in bear spray to deter the bears. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know how true it is. I believe it. And so I believe it too. Not mosquito spray. I know a guy, a writer from uh, Missoula, a good guy, uh, but he wasn't thinking very much this, this one time. He decided that he was going to be sprayed by a bear so he could tell what it was like by bear spray. Oh, man. And he had his buddy hit him with a bear spray, and he rolled around, and he said that he had to teach himself how to breathe. He thought he was going to die just gasping for breath. Like I mean, it was just, he said it was horrible. It yeah. Was just, another thing, too. If you're out there hunting and the wind is blowing the wrong way, here comes a bear and it blows right back at you, you're in trouble. You know, so there's a, there's so many scenarios out there that could work against you. So. You could make him really mad and then be in <laughs> distress yourself. Yeah. <laughs> the guy that got me into bow hunting went on a guided Montana elk hunt in the late 90s, and he stepped through kind of a rock crevice with a bear spray in his pocket and punctured the can. Oh. Shot down his leg and it burned for days. Two years ago, I took my wife on the migration mule deer hunt up by your house, mm -hmm. and we were buzzing up the roads on the quad, and we parked the quad and then hike a mile or so out to landings and just trying to get in a good position for migrating deer. Well, my safety cap had come off my second can of spray, mm. which is on the shoulder strap. I went to put it on and barely oh, hit no. the lever with my elbow, and it just... Not even a millisecond it sprayed, but it hit me right in the left eye. Oh! Immediately, I was on my knees on the ground. Thankfully, I'd parked the quad seven feet from a small, three-foot-wide, six-inch-deep burbling creek, and I had my face shoved in there. Four hours later in the day, I just went to brush my shoulder, you know, something, and rub the other eye, and some of that capsin was on my finger, and now it's in the other eye, and it's water in it, and I'm pouring water in it from a water bottle. So guys that say, oh, I'm going to get a pistol, and I'm going to be the big tough guy, here's David carrying two cans of spray for a reason. It works, but, oh, it's nasty. Yeah. It, and to get it deployed in three seconds, if you don't, you can't hardly pull it out of your pocket if yeah. you don't know what's going on. So that, to your point, that is, that is pretty bad. I can remember we tested a can one day, a, a live can at camp. It was an older can, and they do go out of date. So replace your cans after a few years. But we set it on a picnic table, set the whole wall tent up, came back an hour later, and we were standing in a circle like we are now. Somebody just grabbed the can to go put it away. They shook it maybe three inches up and down as they picked it up off the table, and all three of us immediately started coughing and had to back away. And nothing coming out of – they didn't hit the yeah. lever, just there was enough residual yep. sitting on the end of that can that atomized. It's, it's potent stuff. It's, oh, it's good stuff, oh. and it, it could save your life. There was a, one incident on Kodiak Island. We're out hunting deer, black deer, deer, and and one of the guys a can went off accidentally in his on his holster. Oh my God! And it happened on the, on this boat that we were staying on. And holy man, it was terrible. Just the, was the bush pilots and the float plane pilots they tape that stuff to the wings because yeah. they don't want to take it up and oh, have it. If, if you put oh. if you had a can go off in in a plane, yeah, I don't think you could land it. Yeah. I don't think. You could open the doors and land it safely. So what do you think of that blacktail hunt up there on 
Kodiak. I think it's fantastic. I always went up around Thanksgiving because the deer would be down on the beach. And uh, I know you've hunted goats, but Kodiak Island is just straight up and straight down. A lot of snow-capped peaks everywhere. But the deer in the Alpine, they'll stay up there in the spring and summer and the fall. They're and, harder to get to than the goats, we're taking, by the way. We're taking guys that are amputees, okay? Yes. And they can, they can shoot from the boat. But I tell you, shooting from a boat ain't easy either because that boat's going like this and mm-hmm. the swell's. And you know you're trying to aim, and holy smokes, you just—it's—it's it's almost impossible. But anyway, uh, we go and the deer are right. You can see them from the boat, so we'll try to beach the boat and, and get a guy up there. It's really tough to do it if there's somebody in a wheelchair. But most of the guys are ambulatory; they can get along pretty well. We actually had a buck one time laying in the suds on the beach, and I was filming it for my TV show. And the Outdoor Channel has some rules which I don't agree with all of them, but one of them is they don't like you shooting an animal when it's bedded. And uh, anyway, this buck was bedded, and uh, we we uh, we just pulled up next to it. He looked at us. He was eating seaweeds and uh, uh, laying there eating seaweed. So we got the guy out, and he's, he wouldn't get up, so I had to throw a rock at him to <laughs> stand up, and then my guy shot it, but... It's a great hunt. I I just enjoy the heck of it. I've done it probably five or six times, and I've done it myself. Uh, where it's a DIY hunt, you know, a transporter takes you out, and uh, you go up on shore with a partner, and you got a little radio to make sure that he knows, you know, um, if you're in trouble or if you got a deer, and he also gives you a red light that you set on the beach because you might go in one spot and hunt and come down a mile up the shore. Um, but you're on your own. There's usually two of us, and, you know, of course, it's loaded with brown bears. And whenever we shot a deer, I'll tell you, we we broke records gutting that thing and getting the heck out of there. We just took a antler and just run like heck down the shore. And, and uh, interesting story. I tell you this last night, I think, at dinner. I was having, I was having dinner with Chuck Adams one time and uh, at a B&C convention, I think. And, of course, Chuck is probably the most... Uh, legendary bow hunter today and we were talking about venison because we both like to cook and i said what's your favorite venison including all the planes game in africa and, and everything you've ever shot he said sick of blacktails i said oh my god you're kidding me that's my favorite as well and out of a clear blue sky and i tell you those deer are so fantastic even during the rut i just and what's interesting there's not a, a, a single corn stalk or wheat or grain <laughs> nothing they're all they're eating is brush you know, there's no farms where we hunt them, as you know. You know, it's wilder than heck, but that meat is fantastic, and it's just so good. I'll almost second it. I, yeah. I will say that uh, doll sheep would be my favorite, right? But that's yeah. that's pretty yeah. pretty difficult to obtain, and that's because it has marbled fat in the meat. But yeah. it, it, <laughs> the the very, very close second is Sitka blacktail. Yeah. And it, a, it's head and shoulders above not everything else yeah. that includes eland that includes all the oh, eland yeah. is good but yeah. it's not sitka blacktail yep and well, I'll, I'll tell you what a caribou in the velvet is it's veal it's just plain veal it's it's uh it's i'd say it's probably equivalent to a, a blacktail but but then i've been to shows right i've given seminars for 30 years you know i was on a circuit and i talked to hunters in a room and and they'd say what's your favorite Game animal, what's your least favorite? And I'd say caribou and caribou. <laughs> like, what? Okay, you take a caribou, he's, got his, he's in his velvet, and those hunts often start in August. That's the best eating. But in a, when a caribou's in a rut in October, even the dogs won't eat it. 
I'm serious. I, and that's universal. Uh, that's from Newfoundland to Alaska. That's just the way it is. I mean, a lot of the natives do eat it, but I don't know what they do. They boil it and they pour a bunch of, who knows, Something. something, yeah, <laughs> A one or something. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, Jim, you mentioned the circuit, right? I was, I was one of those young boys. I went to the Portland Expo. That you know, I all year waited for the Portland Expo. I got up and I read your articles in Outdoor Life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd get on and watch Outdoor Network on TV Saturday mornings while other kids are watching cartoons or playing video games. I was watching. Uh, anything but turkey hunting. I just could not stand <laughs> golf or turkey hunting. Once once golf and turkey hunting came on, but somebody would, I, anybody would be on TV, and I loved elk. I wanted mm, to watch yeah. elk hunts, right? Mm. But you came and did an elk seminar, oh, I'm going to say 96, 97 at the Portland yeah. Expo. Yeah, I started doing it in 82. I was in yeah. the crowd, and I hung on every word. Here was wow. this big black, black <laughs> really? catted cowboy man from sorry. Wyoming talking about and I, I was... That was the the probably the highlight of the sports shows for me was listening to mm-hmm. there's a there's a uh, Hogan and you and a couple other guys showed up and, but Elk was what I yeah you know and I I finally I'm I made it out here I got the horses yeah, in the yard and done well I see a little mounts here and stuff oh, I got to tell you a funny story I used to start my elk seminars with one story and people got used to it as they came every year I have them all they're all sitting down. And I'd say, if you hunted elk this past season, stand up. So maybe three-fourths of the room stands up. I say, if you didn't get an elk, sit down. A lot of people sit down. There's still a lot of people standing. I say, okay, if you got a spike bull, sit down. People sit down. If you got a raghorn, three-by-four, four-by-four, sit down. More people sit down. There's still a few people standing. If you got a five-by-five, sit down. If you got a six by six, sit down. Now there's only one or two people standing, right? So I, there's two people standing there, and I said a seven by seven. Another guy sits down. Another guy stays standing. I said eight by eight. He stays standing. <laughs> I said nine by eight, nine by ten, eight by ten. He says, I said, what did you get? He said, I got a cow elk. He didn't ask about cows. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. I'm like, yeah, cow elk. <laughs> <laughs> so, he was waiting for that. You know, he just, he was waiting for that because he'd been about it seven hours before. It was funny. That's awesome. So, I, anyway. Going back to the food in Wyoming, of all the game that you can get here, what's your favorite? Believe it or not, antelope. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Pronghorn. Elk as well. I love elk. I got a cow this year, but... Uh, we love it. You know, an antelope, there's a love-hate relationship. Some people don't like it, absolutely will not hunt it, will not cook it, and, and my wife and I love it, you know. And, of course, everybody talks about field care yep. and what they eat. I think the last dozen antelope I've taken have been either in or close to alfalfa fields. There's a lot of hunt. There's a lot of ranchers out there. You know, in the Cody region, if you get onto their page, you'll see a, a page where landowners – actually put down their phone numbers call yep. me if you want to shoot an antelope we have those and here. you call yep. those guys <laughs> a couple of years ago I, I drew a tag over by otto i don't know if you know where otto is out there mm-hmm. in bighorn county and and i called this guy and uh i said sir i've got a antelope tag a doe antelope tag for the unit and i see you've you've uh you've volunteered to you know let hunters on he says what are you doing tomorrow morning i says um, i don't know he says Meet me at Otto at 9 o'clock, and I'll show you where they are. So I jump in my truck, and there he is sitting in his truck. Follow me. 
So we drive down the road 10 miles. He stops at a field. There's about 60 antelope out there. He says, go shoot them all. <laughs> shoot them all. <laughs> <laughs> <So> well, <laughs> I could have one. Yeah. It's like, I'd like to take more, but I can't shoot But anyway, them. what I'm getting at is there's so many, there's so many places you can shoot antelope. And, and the neat thing about it is they're mostly accessible in a lot of areas. You can see a lot of them. It's a great place to take kids for their first hunt. You know, antelope are just... Uh, there's, like I say, there's so many, and it's not like elk where you might hunt for a week and not even see one. But uh, yeah, um, you touched on a premise there of, you know, early turn of the century turkeys, whitetail, bison, antelope. Yeah, they were all nearly extinct, right? Yeah, we we had some very visionary people that set up, you know, a Boone and Crockett Club and the national park systems and the North American Wildlife Conservation Model. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're joking here about, hey, shoot all those antelope. But in these developing countries where that farmer's putting in his heart and soul and his harvest oh, is yeah. the alfalfa, he literally does shoot all 60 of those right. antelope. And That's he doesn't, right. I mean, he might consume some of them, but we do have a great system to where those antelope are protected. You know, that isn't, that isn't the private property owner's wildlife. That is the, the mm-hmm. state's trust. That is a public resource and it's treated as such and the Mm -hmm. the violators get prosecuted and that's why we have there's two places on the continent that wildlife have increased uh in in the 20th century it's south africa not africa south africa and north america Mm -hmm. and it's because of our conservation efforts by small groups hunting with heroes by muley fanatics by big groups you know fishermen i mean you name it anybody that's buying outdoor gear you're paying into that system and you're helping oh yeah and the, the pittman robertson act don't forget that's yep. an 11 percent excise tax on yep. on uh, ammo and guns and fishing the, fishing the manufacturers are charged 11 percent. that goes in and ducks unlimited where do you think the refuges came from from people like us going to banquets and spending money on uh, auctions and Paying and buying duck stamps. Duck stamps, yeah. It's duck sad to were, say, but in our day and age, that duck needs to pay for his bit of land. That elk needs to pay for their bit of land. Well, they mm-hmm. they don't have thumbs. They don't go out and make money. But we mm-hmm. can make money to support. And that's, I mean, my company is partnered with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Why? Mm-hmm. We're a bow hunting company. We're a bow product, right? And they, what's really cool about their mission statement and. I wanted to say this earlier. If you're going to support any one of these organizations, just go look at their funding and their hierarchy and, you know, how their money's spent. Because some of these organizations that we've mentioned, 90% or more of the money goes to the mission. Some of these organizations that are masquerading as a nonprofit, 90% of that funding is going to overhead corporate administrative fees and 10%. And I'll I'll give you, Humane Society of the United States is one. Defenders mm -hmm. of Wildlife is another one that's saying they're going to defend wildlife. They do nothing. Well, spend your money wisely, right? Put it into people that are actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. You know, like last night, watching, you know, these Mealy fanatics, those guys are, I mean, they're all about the mission. They, They care deeply. Like, if you talk to those guys about, mule deer and what's happening they get kind of teared up sometimes when they talk about because they they remember what it was like well, yeah. you know 20 years ago and 30 years ago and now the mule deer are just declining so fast yeah, it's, it's scary there were 600,000 mule deer in wyoming about about 20 years ago now there's like 350 yeah 350,000 and uh they're doing an interesting study around cody um on the north fork herd or coloring deer 
They just ended that project a few weeks ago. They caught 180 by a, uh, from a helicopter using one of those uh, net guns. And they collared 20 of them from the ground using darts. You know, guys are biologists around their pickup trucks. So they've got collars on them, GPS collars. And it's fascinating because every day, that GPS, twice a day, I, I know the big game chief and Cody, and we had an interesting discussion. Twice a day, they get a ping back from that deer, and it goes on a map, it's recorded, and you can see where that deer is every day for months and months and months. And when that collar falls off, it's programmed to, I mean, when it's programmed to stop, um, I think it's a year and a half now, and if something happens to that deer, you will know that it's either dead or whatever. It's dead, you know, it's no longer transmit. You can go exactly to that spot, because it'll tell you where that deer is laying and find out what killed it, whether it was a mountain lion or starvation or CWD, whatever. So it's fascinating. It's just fascinating. Yeah. They're Great doing data. a lot of work. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I worked in the oil field with a kid who left and started working for the helicopter company shooting that net gun, and he used to send me pictures all day long. But yeah. that net gun gives those guys blisters. I'll bet. He, he's got both his – I mean, because they're shooting – a hundred animals in a week with the net gun and it's not it's got four really big balls and then a net right and so they yep. bring the helicopter 20 30 feet above what they're chasing and they kind of have to lead it a little bit and shoot this net and the animal gets tangled up they land the helicopter right there work the animal up you know get a collar on it blindfold it usually they take a blood sample do some other stuff and they're releasing that animal within minutes yeah. of i mean yeah. and it's a much more humane way on the animal than instead of the old days, they would helicopter it back to a biologist right, oh, yeah. and then lay it there. And so the, the animals, I guess, detained for four, six hours, you yeah. know, maybe, maybe an hour, but now that they're doing it, they've trained the, the guy that's shooting the gun to, to do the job. I mean, they're minutes, that animal's back yeah. on its feet and gone. So it's it, a great, and when those guys, when they, when they get on that, the animals in the net, and it's not just laying there; it's kicking and flailing, and it's panicked. And you got to grab that thing. And I, most of those guys got bruises all over the place. I mean, mm -hmm. they get hurt by you know sharp hoofs. Kicking they're doing and bull elk and two hundred inch mule deer, and those things yeah, are. That's right. They're, yeah. they're, they're not just doing fawns and, and does. You talk about a helicopter lifting up an animal. I got to tell you a funny story. Years ago, there were no moose in Colorado, so the first uh, the first transplant came from Utah. And what they did was they would dart a moose and pick it up in a net and take it up in a helicopter and put it somewhere in a horse trailer or whatever. And one time they had this moose way up in the air. All the TV cameras were there and the cable snapped. Ooh. Bam. Killed the moose and killed that project. So good old Wyoming steps up. They said, we'll get you some moose. So they built a corral around Jackson somewhere. And they got a whole bunch of moose and, and got them into this corral. And that's basically how the Colorado moose thing started. Now there's thousands of moose in Colorado. But, and by the way, they're going to they're, they're introduce uh, wolves in Colorado soon. So and they already had there. the wolves. They're already coming down there. That's the yeah, frustrating part. Yeah, a few There's of a pack them. on the border. Yeah. Now, <laughs> what's, what's interesting is those are Wyoming wolves going to Colorado, crossing the line. But... When they're in that part of Wyoming, that's the predator wolf area. You can shoot them year-round, no license. You can shoot a whole pack if you want to, you know, as long as it's, you're on public land or you know the landowner. 
Right. So those wolves somehow got all the way from where I live and from here all the way across the state, and a few of them are getting into Colorado. But they're bringing in a big bunch here, I think, in May. And I know some of them are going into Gunnison River country, and some of them are going into Moffat County. There's 500,000 so, elk in Colorado. They have the largest elk herd. They do. I worked for an outfitter in northeast Oregon, had one of the better migration hunts in Snake River country. And 2009, I saw the first set of wolf tracks running down the road. And, you know, Jim mentioned this, and Shockey mentioned this last night, is we have changed the landscape to where the wolf as an apex predator can be an even better apex predator with logging roads, Right wolf can get on that road and run instead of being able to run three miles in a day through the timber he can run 30 miles in a day he can pick up fresh tracks and be on a kill and 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 gone again so the the premise is we need to manage all wildlife as a intact ecosystem not managing you know take 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 a lake for example if you're only going to manage one species in the lake another one's going to completely overwhelm it because there's no management and it's going to have that cascading negative effect on the whole ecosystem well predators can have a big impact on fisheries and you know Mm -hmm. the landscape i mean that's part of the reason that i believe we're supposed to be the stewards we're supposed to use the knowledge that we have to help manage the species that's why we have these biologists that work really hard by the way uh, to pay oh, attention yeah. you know like dan thompson who we've had on with large carnivores yeah you know he works his tail off and so do all of them and they specifically collect this data so that we know how to manage them and yet they get handcuffed by the court system yeah, they, and by these big groups you know special interest groups they're not operating off emotion of these biologists are going out taking raw data you know, mm-hmm. extrapolating it and getting a scatter plot and going, here's a trend line. Here's my hypothesis of where the data is pointing. And we know what carrying capacity is. We know prey predator relations. We know, you know, overwinter carrying ca- capacities and how all these things are starting to have an impact on the whole system. More importantly, 200 years ago, there wasn't houses in Wapiti. There wasn't houses in Dubois, you know, that we as humans have encroached on their space. Yeah, but they need to pay for the land they have. And we can't have, I remember hearing one biologist said we need to introduce African elephants and lions to replace the woolly mammoth and the saber tooth tiger that was extirpated by humans at some point in time. Right. Can you imagine (laughs) elephants in Kansas going through crop fields? Uh, Yeah, there's some biologists out there, anti hunters, by the way. I've seen them. I've talked to them. They yeah. are seriously not in Wyoming, right? But I can show you cases in other states where they're basically, yeah, yeah. But even bison stick bison everywhere that they used to be, and mm-hmm. see how well that works out. They, for they don't you. respect fences. Oh no, fences are optional, man. Yeah. <laughs> so bison Jim, goes right through them. What's one of your most memorable articles you you have written? In one of your one, favorites, one, one of your favorites. Oh man, I mean, there's hundreds of hard them. one. <laughs> Come on, one that comes to mind. Well, I probably told you this before, and I'll say it again. You know, we always talk about kids, and you know how hunting needs to be passed on from one tradition, uh, from one generation to another, and uh, just because it's it's so much, it's such a wholesome activity, you know, and getting kids involved in the outdoors keeps them off the streets and off the, out of the malls and stuff, but. I've got four kids. I've got a son and three daughters. And I was raised a long time ago uh, by an Italian family. I'm 
basically yeah, I was I was raised as an Italian because my grandparents came from Italy and and in that in in that basically is a situation where women were in the kitchen you know they wouldn't even they'd be afraid to be in a room with a gun only men hunted so I started hunting with my grandfather and my dad and my uncles for rabbits with beagle hounds so as as I became a father uh, my daughter Jeanette was the first child, and 18 months later, Danny came along, and then two other girls after that. But anyway, Danny was the apple of my eye. You know, we I'd put him on my shoulders, and we trained my German short here, you know, flesh and pheasants, and took him hunting all the time. When he was a little kid, when he was eight, he got a 22. When he was 10, he got a 410 shotgun. Then he got a 243, and all this time, Jeanette seemed to be not interested. But she'd actually go with us on some hunts, and she'd sit in the tent and read while Danny and I were out hunting. So one day she was in college at Utah State, and she come home. She was really mad. She said, "I said, what are you, what are you upset for?" She said, "My boyfriend went out hunting with his dad and his brother, and he didn't invite me." I said, "What? You wanted to hunt?" She says, "I've always wanted to hunt." And I thought, "Holy smokes, what have I missed?" So. I uh, gave her my thirty out six. We went out to the range. She shot the gun. Took three shots. She was fine with it. We went out in the book cliffs. Judy was with us, my second youngest daughter, and she spotted a buck. Judy did, and Jeanette shot it. And uh, holy smokes! Like, how many years have I wasted? You know, not <laughs> not thinking that right. she would want to hunt. So I wrote a story for outdoor life. And called it uh, a buck for Jeanette. And holy smokes, we were deluged with with letters from readers. Not because uh, the story was so great, but it was the message. And we got letters from fathers, from daughters, from wives, from like, holy smokes, I never really appreciated that. So to me, that was not only a learning experience for me, but also I was able to pass that on to the readers. Like, wait a minute, you guys, you know, if you're not taking your daughter's hunting, think about it. So... That was probably the most, mm, I don't know, probably my favorite story. You know, I've, you know, other, I've done lots of hunts around and stuff, but that, that always comes back to, to probably the the one that meant the most to me. So, there you go. That's that's great. Yeah. So we haven't talked about your bow spider yet, Mister. <laughs> my bow What's spider. What's going on? Huh? <laughs> What's going on with bow spider? We launched a uh, a crossbow model. I have been to. Almost every trade show I could make it to, starting in Cowboy Christmas in December, uh, culminating in Redmond, Oregon last week, and then we'll start the uh, 3D shoot circuit here in two weeks, and I'll be in booth till August. So I'm on the road doing the doing the circuit. You remember those days? Yes, I do. Yeah. But you, it it's the crossbow one's going to be a, another game changer for the guys that you know. We have this aging demographic that. And they got their shoulder issues, and they're converting these crossbows and these new crossbows. I'm, I am not a huge fan. I'm, I like my bow, and I like the challenge and the skill of it. But I like the capacity that my dad, who's going to be on the seventy side, can come still go bow hunt with my brother and I. Right? Mm-hmm. We're going to go back and go to a state that crossbows are legal. They're legal here, and you know, I had a guy come here who had just had surgery on both shoulders. He drew a non-resident elk tag. It's a thousand bucks. He was bummed. He's like, I don't think I'm going to hunt. I'm like, grab a crossbow and come go. Mm-hmm. While we were hiking through the woods, they are the most cumbersome, awkward things to carry. They're, they're, 
you know, they're a combination between a rifle and a bow, and they just they do not pack well in the woods. But they are inherently pretty accurate with limited practice. So I'm going to start my, you know, 10-year-old. He's just going to turn 11. As soon as he's 12, he's already got his hunter safety done. We're going to take him out doe antelope hunting with a crossbow out of a blind over a water hole. Get him ready for, Great. you know, 15, 20-yard shots. It, he'll be, he'll be pers- you know, he'll be precise, he'll be accurate, and we'll have a nice clean harvest that first. And you know how important that first. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That first harvest sticks. I can, I can put myself back to the smell and the sights and the, mm-hmm. and it was a, it was a doe black-tailed deer in central Oregon. Right. But, and that's been a few hunts ago now, not, not as many as your first hunt, but we all remember that <laughs> first one. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Both so, spiders doing well. And we're, we're going to continue to keep making improvements in the industry where we see we fit. So good. And we need to get you back up here to take some PK lures out and go catch uh, some lake you, trout. Absolutely. We uh we undisclosed location. I'm waiting for the call. Yeah, we're going location. <laughs> we, we we have a spot that there's some lake trout that we've heard that need to be removed from the population. Yellowstone Lake, folks. Yeah. Yellowstone lake. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're gonna go uh, go, go catch a few Lakers. And I got a smoker that's just waiting for a couple of nice lake trout fillets. But uh, yeah. yeah, and lake trout's about as good as it gets. And if you want good lake trout lures, the flutterfish, the PK spoon, the spinajig, I got you a couple of those. Those. Those things work, and if you, if you want to get a hold of those, you can go to pklure.com. Great, great company, great bunch of guys. So, um, but yeah, the the thought of being able to get out on a boat sounds really good after this long oh, winter. Man, I'm, I'll tell you I'm what. ready. Oh, well, gosh. you guys saw the driveway into the studio here. The ruts are. Oh man, the I mud. mean, the snow's piled. It's it's been. <laughs> I've ran out of firewood twice. I've never. We've been here eight years at this property and i've never run out of firewood it's been a brutally cold winter it's usually we start burning mid-november right and we're done Mm -hmm. by february by now if if i had wood we'd still be burning today because it's it was 10 degrees last night i was stoking the fire this morning and i mean just the having this huge blanket of snow has dropped that temperature so much that i mean we're cold anyway in fremont county but man it has been brutal this year but that's okay there is hope it is going to warm up it's going to melt and it's going to dry out we're we're going to be out on open water catching some fillets and i really want to uh smoke some and get some high mountain seasoning when we did a a little uh test in alaska's interesting test jim we took patrick's kind of favorite family recipe we took my dad's tried and true you know kenai recipe we took my kenai recipe and then we took two different uh high mountain mountain seasonings we had one that was gourmet fish and the other one was it was the alaskan salmon one Mm -hmm. hands down head and shoulders the gourmet fish was that gourmet really crowd favorite on sockeye salmon so how long did you brine it we did it what was it 24 hours 24 24 yeah 24 hours then we you know uh rinsed it patted it dry let it sit out with the fan on so his dad's got this massive smoker that they built Mm -hmm. it's got seven huge racks and i'll show you some pictures but they turned the fan on dried you know got that pellicle on there Mm -hmm. fired it up with some apple wood and that Mm -hmm. was delicious delicious i'm shocked at how much difference having that pellicle that dry tacky surface that's, on top it's his fault he yeah. taught me that that the <laughs> you difference gotta, in that you gotta do that really you do i used but, to just uh, pull because we use a, 
a Rubbermaid tote because there's that much sockeye salmon yeah, to brine. Yeah, yeah that works. And yeah. then, you know, we laid it all out. But we, we put it, there's a fan in there and just put it in the smoker and put the fan on for a little while to get that. And then put the seasoning on top, yeah. you know, put the. Well, what's your, if you're going to smoke a whole bunch of lake trout, sockeye salmon, how do you do it? What's your method? Well, I've been smoking fish seriously since I was in my 20s, which is a long time ago. And I had one of those little chief smokers. Yeah, and they still give got you, one They of those. give you a little recipe, you know. You put some salt and brown sugar, and that's pretty much it. And I, and I never, you know, it's okay. But then I go to Alaska, and I, oh, my gosh, these guys know what they're doing. You know, the smoked salmon were so much better. But anyway, I just kept fooling with recipes. And one day I was ice fishing in Cody and Buffalo Bill, and there were a bunch of old guys there. About my age. <laughs> and one guy was retired, and I didn't know him. I said, what would you do for a living? He said, I ran a, a wild game processing place. I said, really? I said, yeah. You smoked uh, deer hams and ducks and pheasants and fish? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of customers wanted that. I said, I guess you really got a great brine recipe, don't you? And he said, I got the best. He says, I, you know. I said, it's probably secret, isn't it? He said, I'm retired. I'll give it to you. So he, he says, wait a minute, he runs out to his truck and he brings me back a vacuum packed package of a couple chunks of fish and hold I said, this is it. So anyway, he gave me the recipe and that's what I use. So I'll tell you right now if you want to know. Sure, but yeah, absolutely. I don't want to take away from High Mountain, but no, I'm, going try, I'm going to try High Mountain. Here we go. Two cups of brown sugar, half cup of white sugar, and one cup of Tender Quick, Morton's Tender Quick. Comes in a two-pound bag. Yep. You put that on, the, you put it in a tub, like you said, you put your fillets in there, skin on, just sprinkle that stuff all over dry, add no liquid, and just keep layering your fillets in the tub, keep throwing on that after you mix up the, the, uh, the sugar and the tender quick. And before you know it, it turns to liquid when it hits the, the moist fish. Oh, okay. And it, it looks like maple syrup, chocolatey brown color, and just... Kind of let them sit for a half hour and then start mushing them around, you know, so the so that solution hits all the fish. Then put it in the fridge and I put them in for seven hours. And uh, between that time, I'll take them out and just mix them all around again because I'm doing I don't know how many. I might mix up trout with salmon or, or I catch gold eyes in Montana, mm -hmm. um, whatever it is. But uh, I want to make sure that liquid hits them and then rinse them off. Put them on a counter. And dry them with a paper towel and let them form that pellicle for an hour. Throw them in the smoker. I've got a, a, a Camp Chef smoker craft. Mm -hmm. It's got five trays, and each tray will hold eight good-sized fillets. So I can do 20 fish. So 40 fillets, 20 fish. And I usually try to cook them for... Start off at 150. And, uh, of course, you put sawdust in the thing. You know, it doesn't have the pellets or, or anything like some of the other fancier smokers. But uh, you kind of have to watch the, the gauge because if it, once that sawdust starts to burn, it creates more heat than just a burner under it. And before you know it, you're at 180, 200, and you don't want to creosote the fish or anything, so you have to kind of watch it. But that's that's what I do. And but how I'm many hours there. usually? You know... A, a fish fillet will only take so much smoke. You can say, oh, I'm going to smoke it for three days. It's going to be great. No, three hours is it. It's not going to take any more smoke. It just will not yeah. assimilate any more that, smoke. Because that outer layer, can, right. it, it's not going to absorb at that point. Yep. It just takes yep. what it can. Yeah. So three hours, four hours. So there you go. And then you 
consume it, which is the best part. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I just love smoked fish. I like fish. to put it on a cracker with cream cheese. Yeah, me too. Yeah, or make a, uh, a dip. You know, I'll take some smoked fish and mayo and cream cheese and horseradish and a little lemon juice and maybe chop up a pickle and throw it in my little processor and yep. make that little paste and holy smokes that's a crowd pleaser yeah i've got a recipe on our website if you go to radcastoutdoors.com it's it's kind of a similar idea it's it's a sour cream cream cheese base mm-hmm. you ha- add the fish some red pepper flakes paprika to give it that kind of good color you know some uh garlic yeah, powder yeah. some pepper some dill weed to get that kind of dill flavor in there and uh mix that up really good and i'm probably forgetting a oh i also put in a little bit of the, either cholula or tapatio like hot sauce yeah and you put that on a cracker or on mm. a piece of toast oh my gosh i have a buddy i shared the recipe with him his name's bob he's a lineman here for high plains power and he said man you should have never given me that recipe he said my wife's like now like you got to catch more fish because i'm just going to keep eating it and i guess she's just been hammering that stuff with ritz crackers i was like i know man you eat one and you can't stop it's so good your fish is different it's wonderful it really is so uh, in fact you sent me the recipe but i want to try the uh, high mountain the uh, gourmet what do you call it gourmet fish brine brine. yep it's excellent because yeah there's you know there's not one perfect one only one there's lots of them they're all taste have a little subtle difference in taste you know Mm -hmm. one thing about tender quick it's it's a salt uh sugar mixture it's a lot of the old timers the farmers and the ranchers have used it. it's hard to find walmart doesn't sell it i find it in albertson's and cody but it's got sodium nitrate sodium nitrate uh, which are cures that uh, you that bacon's made out of, and that being the case, I have shipped fish um, in a priority box to friends back east. It takes four to five days, and they're getting war- they're warm when they arrive. Obviously, I'll send them frozen in, in vacuum packed bags. But since they're cured, no problem. I mean, I've been doing that for years. Nobody's mm-hmm. died yet or got sick, so it, it works. And in fact. I used to use a high mountain uh, jerky cure back when Afghanistan and Iraq were going, and I'd send stuff to the troops in uh, a box of uh, whatever, um, yeah. you know, hard candy that that won't melt and jerky, a lot of jerky. That stuff would sit there in Afghanistan at 120 degrees, and the troops were loving it. It didn't hurt it, you know, because it's just well, it's like what you buy in a in a, uh, a gas station, you know, all those, yep. uh, all that kind of stuff is cured. So, yeah. And the troops really appreciate no, that. They love it. My yeah. buddy Cody, he's the same way. The when he was in Iraq, the the two things he wanted, jerky and wet wipes, because oh, okay, I mean they're yeah. out in the desert. Yeah. And wet wipes are good way to clean themselves up because yeah. I mean it's just so nasty and yeah. dirty. And and then of course jerky to eat because yeah. it stays with you. So yeah. and they say don't send socks because mom sends socks. You know? <laughs> yeah, send, send something send some else. Good stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> send me something to eat and something to clean up with. Yeah. Well, Jim, I know uh, you got your cow elk, and I uh, I drug Patrick out in the woods this fall, and I we got that. a cow elk. Cool. Yeah. Went and got my cow elk. Um, what is your favorite venison recipe, and how do you prepare it? Well, you know, it depends. I, um, of course, the backstrap and the tenderloins are the top, you know, parts of any animal. But I used to butterfly my backstraps and, and uh, fry them up with whatever kind of oil. But I was in Arkansas one time hunting deer. It was actually a duck 
uh, duck place, but there were a lot of deer, and I went down with, I think, Remington. We were testing new bullets. And so instead of ducks, we're hunting deer, and, and uh, we got some whitetails. And there was some ladies who ran the kitchen, and southern ladies, and they took those back straps, and they doused them with olive oil, and sprinkled them lavishly with Cavender's Greek season. Now, Cavender's is made in Arkansas, in Harrisburg, Arkansas. In fact, I knew Steve Cavender. I used to hunt with him. He passed away at a very young age, but at any rate, you can still buy Cavender's. It's very popular, Walmart, every place. And I just sprinkle it with, uh, with the Cavender's all around, set it in the fridge for about six, seven hours, and just let it sit there, and then put it on a grill. Holy smokes! I, I don't, you know, I do that with everything now. I just it's it's <laughs> the way I my favorite way to do it. But uh, I also have a recipe for maybe you got a nasty mule deer in the rut and he kind of you know he kind of have to hold your nose. That happens. Uh, a big old buck with a big old swollen neck. And I got a recipe from my son's wife um, who had spent some time. Her parents had spent some time in Hawaii, so. They use a lot of ginger, and I call it um, um, ginger elk. And basically, you um, you cut up some ginger root, which you can find anywhere, and you cut a bunch of onions, and you, you cut your meat into very thin strips, maybe two inches long, very thin, maybe a quarter inch thick. And then you put that in a bowl with the onions, with the ginger that you've chopped up very, very fine, maybe one half of a big head of ginger. Mix that up with soy sauce. And let it sit for maybe an hour. Cook that stuff. And I don't care if you've got a nasty old goat or Barbary <laughs> sheep, whatever. It's going to be fantastic. And I wrote a cookbook that I don't even want to mention it because it's out of print. And I've got two cases left, so I don't sell them anymore. But that was my all-time favorite uh, recipe. Um, it's just It just works. Because it's, a, it's a, the soy sauce... And it's the onion, you know, and the ginger. It all contributes to a, a just makes everything taste, taste great. So. I'm mouthwatering thinking about it because I do like the ginger yeah. flavor, you oh, know, yeah. on on, yeah. on venison. It's it's excellent. So, well, man, it's been great to have you on the show, Jim. <laughs> well, it's um, been fun to be here. Yeah, like, oh, I it's wish been there was any ice out there. We go fishing later, but that's <sighs> I got I got to get back to Cody. I got an old dog. It's 15 years old and. My wife went to see her mom today in Denver, so I got to get back and take care of the old boy. Well, we'll so. get you back. We've got uh, fishing to do for sure, and Great. some fish to eat as well. So I have a oh. couple of weeks here at home, so we're we're gonna Good. we're gonna keep an eye on that ice on that lake. The second yeah. it comes <laughs> off, you need to just get well, down I'll here. I'll tell you that there's so much ice on Boysen now. My gosh! Oh my gosh! Holy smokes! You could still drive a semi out there, but yeah, yeah I don't know. We'll see what happens. It'll clear yeah. off. Oh yeah, it spring's coming. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for okay. taking the time. I know it's a, it's a sacrifice on your end. I know you got stuff to do, but we really no, appreciate no, it's you. It's fun coming down. You guys are just fun to talk with because you, you walk the walk and you talk the talk. You know what you're talking about. You know, it's not oh, like thank you haven't been there and done that. So it's always fun to compare notes and. Well, for most me, of everything we said today was true, wasn't it? Yeah, most yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. No embellishments here. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was it was a highlight to get to uh, sit at a table with Shocky and, and Zumbo and swap stories and yeah, just cool. just have a good time. So, yeah. really, thank you for coming down. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And you know, somebody that 
read your articles for 20, 30 years. Thanks for, I mean, there was Are you a lot that old. Um, I'm old. <laughs> the, the gray hair is coming. Unfortunately, Uh-oh. I looked at the uh, first photos of when I started this company and I was still a, a young spry whippersnapper. And that was only four and a half, five years ago. Oh and my gosh. The gray hair is here. And <laughs> yes, yeah, nip those girls. When I started, I had a dark brown hair and you know, I see a gray hair in my mustache. Oh no, I got to get that song again out of there. So I'll get these little scissors and cut that. Thing Don't you know, it's not gray. It's blonde. <laughs> yes. There's just a few blonde ones okay yeah, i've got a few <laughs> all right guys. Okay. all right well thanks again and uh yeah everybody i hope you listen to this episode and share with your friends and come back and listen to some more so. subscribe share go check out our sponsors there's a reason why they are uh, they are on board and we're going to com- perpetually keep them on board because yeah. we like the companies we work with all right until next time thanks again for listening to the radcast outdoors podcast we hope that you've enjoyed the show if so Please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a RADCAST community on Facebook called RADCAST Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.